0: What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Win-Win Effect Show presented by Winject Studios. For episode 105, I speak with the man who envisioned a 24-7 comedy channel and shared that vision with people who told him that was the dumbest idea ever. And wouldn't you know it? Comedy Central is now viewed by 300 million households in over 150 countries across the globe. Who knew? Probably wasn't a dumb idea after all. But today, we picked the brain of Art Bell, I'm not going to spool it all for you, but we go all the way in detail of his constant comedy memoir, how he started Comedy Central, lost his sense of humor, his podcast with Vinny Vivaldi, which by the way, I have to add, if you like to nerd out over comedy, this is a must listen. Before I kick this up a couple of notches and bring on art, text us at 843-396-2104. Let us know how you felt about today's episode and stand by for a quick message. by visiting www.winject.com. If you're ready to build a career doing what you love, then we're ready to see you there. Mr. Art Bell, what is going on, my man? You doing okay? I'm good. Great to be here, Chris. Thanks. I'm thoroughly excited. I know that you're right in the middle, about to move, and I caught you right before that, and it's a very stressful time. But I just want to say thank you again for um, pointing me in the right direction of that memoir, because I learned so much from that, especially what I'm doing right now with WinJet Studios. And everyone was telling me I was nuts applying educational approach to podcasting and media, but I really thought that the overall is I love it. It's in the first person. And it's coming from your frame of your obviously your thinking and obviously your experiences of starting commenting central and I guess we can kind of start off with this. It's all about persistence and, you know, problem solving and jumping ahead, way ahead of objections. And I love that because you have to kind of be really adaptable to change when you're starting something that massive and you have something a great idea and everyone's thinking, you know, 24 hours of comedy is going to be redundant. It's not going to be really work. But let me ask you a question, just to kind of kick this off and just dive right in. How does someone from Jersey Shore in his '60s, starting a underground magazine or news newsletter, a newspaper, was called a tongue? That's the it. Tur- yeah, and reading Mad magazines and just wanted to, you wanted to be a scientist and just be funny. How does someone that that obviously talented and that really diverse at the beginning turn into this obviously what you've created in your life? How does that happen?
1: Well, you know, life is kind of an adventure and you kind of, you mm-hmm. know, you 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 go a little bit with the flow and then every once in a while you push against the rock and go in a different way.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, I, I spent my early years just exploring all kinds of different things. I mean, one of the things that surprises people is when I came out of college, uh, where I had done some comedy and comedy had been sort of my passion for my entire life from the time I was seven or eight years old. But when I came out of college, I took a job as an economist in Washington, Mm -hmm. D.C., working on very, very uh, complex economic problems uh, for the government, for private industry. And it was three years of working with the smartest people I have ever known. And in those days, I was very smart. Um, and I not just, smart anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a little bit of a decline. <laughs> I tell you, It happens, <laughs> but you know, I was right out of school. I was, hung, I was fascinated by the whole thing. And people say to me, Oh man, you, you were an economist. That must've been a drag. No, I loved it. And one of the things I, I tell people is that any job you have, any experience you have is going to help you in your next job or your next experience. I mean, it's all cumulative. So the fact that I wanted to be a scientist, the fact that I loved writing, the fact that I loved comedy, the fact that I, you know, all the things that were me contributed to the things I ended up doing.
0: Right. I love that you said that. And I think that was a great way of starting off in your career, solving some big problems and just being adapted. So you have to really have, think outside the box when solving some of these types of problems. And I've always I've always had someone that gave me that gave me kind of like a push in that type of direction. And it gave me a really good advice about like, listen, don't be, don't be scared to speak up. If someone, if you see a problem and you know that you can give a maybe a suggestion to the problem to solve it, because you have a beautiful mind, the way that you look at things, you look at it completely different than most people. So, and they always told me right from the beginning, like, don't be afraid to speak up. And I think that has to do with a little bit more of a confidence level at the beginning in my career. But I see that a lot where people are at some point in their life, they're going to conform and go right in line and do what everyone else tells them to do in society. Where, um, Yeah, go ahead.
1: I, I think that's right. I think mm-hmm. that most of the time, though, people don't speak up. It may be confidence, but sometimes they're just shouted down. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, listen, we know the problem that women have in meetings where they're talked over by guys all the time, 100%. which doesn't exactly encourage uh commentary by women and you know women have as as many good ideas as men if not more um, so why should that be the case and then on top of that there's hierarchies in in most it companies is. and businesses and those hierarchies really do unfortunately work against good ideas floating to the top you know when I when I actually got higher up in the organization you know after comedy Central and I'm working at some other companies I used to describe my job to, to people as identifying good ideas, not just having good ideas, because, you know, listen, everybody has a couple of good ideas in their lifetime. I think Einstein said I had two good ideas in my life.
0: Now, if Einstein had
1: two, you know, having one is like a miracle, right? But the idea is to look for good ideas, to identify good ideas, and they can come from anywhere in the organization. So I think that the more leadership in an organization can encourage ideas to percolate, not percolate, that's the wrong word sort of float up from the bottom through the organization to the top. True, true. Uh, it's a lot The of better touch
0: off everyone's going to be. It's a lot of touch points you have to make to kind of be able to sell an overall vision and sharing that vision. So I know that when you presented this opportunity of this idea, I mean, obviously you have to look at where we were in that world at that time. HBL was known for comedy you know, stand-ups and giving kind of specials you got got um, Whoopi Goldberg, got Billy Crystal. I mean, there's like so many things that they were doing at the time. I think that I read somewhere in a memoir. I can't remember the name of the actual thing. It's called it as a festival, what they were trying to launch.
1: Right. There was, uh, you know, th- this is an interesting story about HBO. HBO, by the way, was when I got there in the mid 80s, was kind of like Netflix. It yeah. It was like the hottest television around i mean it was just they were changing television they were changing the way people watch television and their innovation you think about it now as like a big deal but their innovation was showing movies uncut and uncensored for the first time so that people could see them in their homes Mm -hmm. and in addition they were very smart they showed comedians they they put comedians on uncut and uncensored so robin williams act you couldn't see robin williams anywhere in the world uncut or uncensored unless you went to a club Mm -hmm. and saw him you know saw him there but they put him on tv uncensored and suddenly
0: you know it's a big business took off yeah he took off he was just wow he was just he was powerful
1: powerful one of the greats
0: Uh, man he was just i remember watching him when i was young and i wasn't supposed you know it's funny i think i told you this when we very first met I learned, I've never sold anything in my life, but I was one of the number one people in, internationally in sales and brokering deals for people that they would hire me as a third party and I would come in and broker the deal. And it wasn't that I made that money. I just knew how to obviously structure the deal and make sure it was a win-win for both parties, short-term and long-term. So when I look at it overall, people ask me, how many sales books have you ever read? I was like, zero. They're like, why? And I'm like, I speak energy fluently. fluently. And it comes from my older sister, me being exposed at a very young age to where she couldn't communicate verbally. She was handicapped. So I learned how to intuitively read what she wanted from me and what she needed and communicate that way. And that was my gift that I didn't know. Of course, I discovered this later on in life, that that was my gift. So when I was, people say, well, I really didn't learn anything from sales books. I learned how to share a vision and storytell by watching standup comedy. And the that way right? that, wow. yeah, that's, that's where I learned it. And I didn't, I picked up on it later. I couldn't, rem, I couldn't, I couldn't actually understand how to do anchoring and framing, but I did it by just watching TV and watching I love comedy. Like I'm a huge comedy nut. So when I learned how to anchor and frame and pick up on a certain emotion and dropping that anchor, I knew exactly what buttons to push just while watching stand-up comedy. Well, you
1: know, I got to say, that was very smart of you to, to use stand-up comedy as the model. First of all, comedy is a very powerful way to communicate. Yes. That was one of the first things I noticed about it. I was a kid, and I was watching the Ed Sullivan show, and my family was watching it with me, you know. And they were laughing, and the, the audience of 200 people were laughing, and I figured there were millions of people all over the country laughing. I said, wow, <laughs> that one guy standing all by himself on a stage is Making all these people laugh. I mean, how cool is that? It's very hard to do. Mm-hmm. But you're also right in that the way stand-up c- comedians sort of frame their stories
0: mm-hmm. is
1: very effective and very powerful. It's got, you know, beginning, middle, and end. It leads to a to a essentially what was called a punchline, but it doesn't work that way exactly that way anymore. But it's got a point. Mm-hmm. And if you dig deep into some of the best comedians' routines they're very socially aware. I mean, they have their finger on the pulse and they have to also know the audience. They have to communicate to, with the audience. I mean, comedians who work in clubs, they'll they'll start their act and then they'll adjust it a little bit based on who's laughing at what and everything yes. else. So your superpower is not that dissimilar from superpower that the, the great comedians have.
0: And I appreciate that because it is. It's, it's actually... You, my dad used to say this when I was a kid. He's like you make you can make anybody laugh. you can make them do anything. You make them laugh, you make them smile that that you're leaving an imprint on them and they're going to think of you a little bit later on and go, okay, that guy was funny. He made me laugh. and they're gonna be open to more possibilities in the future. i it's amazing because I was of course I was an Italian, grew up Italian, funny family, wrong side of the track, so we didn't really have a lot of money. <laughs> but still, I think that you know just me being very persistent and thinking outside the box and using my God gifts that I ended up discovering, like what were some of the, I guess, of course, you've obviously a naturally a funny person, but you actually wrote in your memoir that you ended up like, I guess losing that a little bit like towards the end where you became, it wasn't really that funny anymore. Like, walk me me through that. If you can,
1: let me explain that a little bit. The name of the memoir is constant comedy, Mm -hmm. how I started comedy central and lost my sense of humor. And there's a story behind that. But the reason I wanted to name it that is because I wanted to convey the fact to to a lot of people, especially a lot of the younger people reading the book and and watching Comedy Central these days, that Comedy Central was not shot out of a cannon, fully formed, brilliantly successful, you know, everybody's high-fiving. It was not only incredibly difficult, but the first year, I went to work every day expecting they were going to shut us down. That's Mm -hmm. how bad things were going. They were just, it was a disaster. It was, <laughs> I mean, I don't want to overplay it, but it was really, at, at some moments, humiliating, you know, that we couldn't get this thing going. Um, and that's why I said I lost my sense of humor. It actually comes from an, a, a moment I had with the chairman of HBO. Now, this guy was like, you know, the most powerful guy in Hollywood. And he was my boss's 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 boss. Anyway, he called me in after the after Comedy Channel. That's how we started called it the comedy channel, um, was up for about, I don't know, four or five months. And he called me in and he says, you know, Art, it took a comedy channel to make me lose my sense of humor. And he wasn't laughing and I wasn't laughing and nobody was laughing. And let me tell you, it was serious business. We had to get this thing going. He had bosses. I had bosses. We had to make sure this thing worked and it wasn't working. And I felt, you know, I felt personally responsible having talked them into doing
0: it in the first place. Well, let's, let's back up just a little bit further on this in your story. And I actually read this and there's something that I had to go through in my life. And I've really, I've really re- resonated so much with this memoir. I'm telling you, like I've read a lot. I consume a lot of books. Mm-hmm. I have for years and years and years. I think that's probably one. Of, you don't realize how powerful your subconscious mind is. You'll pull that information out at the last second to keep you alive. Right whatever it is, so if I can just give any advice to anybody, read, 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 especially memoirs really mean, mean a lot to me. But when you mentioned something uh, walking out of the office and I wrote this down to make sure that I brought it up, is that you promised yourself you'd try again soon. If you can put put yourself back in that moment, why did you that was so powerful. I don't know if people caught that, but you promised yourself that you would do you would try it again soon. Walk me through your, your thought process of that.
1: When I first pitched the Comedy Channel idea to somebody important at HBO, I chose the head of HBO programming.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, I didn't know the head of HBO programming, and she didn't know me. But I said, all right, you know, I'm going to try and get her to see what I'm looking at here and maybe get excited about it. So I made an appointment with her. And I walked in. Her name was Bridget. And I said, Bridget, I really think, you know, given HBO's uh, expertise in comedy, I I really think that we should start a 24-7 all comedy cable television network. And she said, stop right there. She said, that is the worst idea I've ever heard. And let me tell you why. And she did. She proceeded to tell me why for the next 10, 10, 15 minutes. She said, comedian, no decent comedian would want to be on it. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants that much comedy. There's plenty of comedy on the dial already. I mean, she just went on and on about why it would never work. Um, And uh, I felt bad. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And she, she ended by saying, you know, you're new, you know, you don't know that much about television. You know nothing about comedy. So thanks for coming by. And, I walked out and I was, you know, it was like having a truck full of ice yes. water thrown on you. But as I was walking in the elevator, I said to myself, she was wrong. I knew she was wrong. Somebody was going to start an all comedy network. I was hoping it would be me or us at HBO and I wasn't going to give up. And I went back to my office with that in
0: mind. Mm. I thought that was powerful. a that- When you, if this goes to anybody listening right now, if you've ever been kicked in the teeth, (laughs) it sucks. But that's, it can be a powerful experience for you if you look at it the way the art looked at it. It's like, you know, you're wrong. But I'm not, it's not your job to explain to her why she's wrong. It's like, listen, it's not the right time. I'm going to obviously go back and lick my wounds a little bit, put together the right opportunity, the right person, engage the room and be able to present it at the right time. And that's what you did. And I, I think that's where Festival wasn't, wasn't doing that well. I think it was Disney channel that came out. And you, something happened where all those stars aligned at that yeah, time. right. Actually, we started
1: talking about that. HBO was doing great. HBO right. was doing great in the mid-80s. Um, and this was actually the late 80s. And I, I was originally called in, by the way, to do econometric forecasting models for <laughs> yeah, HBO. Did- you know, which is interesting. I said, you know, whatever you did in your past is going to help in your future. Mm-hmm. That's how I got a job at HBO because I knew how to do that. Um, I really didn't want to do that for a living anymore, but there I was. So anyway, um, I I ended up working on a channel called Festival, which was HBO found out that the reason people didn't subscribe to HBO when they didn't is either it was too expensive or they didn't want that kind of sex uh, violence and bad language on television in their home. They had kids, they had religious uh, objections, whatever it was. And so HBO said in their infinite wisdom, we'll just put together a channel that doesn't have sex, violence, or bad language. Mm -hmm. Right. And the first day on the job, I got hired by somebody. I was also doing analysis on the channel. First day on the job, I walked into my new boss's office. I said, all right, now wait a second. How's this going to work? We're going to sell something by telling people what it doesn't have, that it doesn't have sex, violence, and bad (laughs) language. And not only that, but isn't a lot of entertainment about you know, looking for sex violence in bad language. You know, I mean, that's how people sell entertainment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my boss said, shh, <laughs> like that. <laughs> because I guess everybody kind of knew that, but there we were, right? Um, yeah, so basically the channel failed pretty quickly. Um, mm-hmm. It was just in test. And it failed for a number of reasons. First of all, as I said, we couldn't figure out a way to market it without saying it doesn't have this stuff. Right. Secondly... Never underestimate the competition. And that was my first lesson in never underestimate the competition because there was a Disney channel around and Disney had started a channel for children and they were selling their channel as a kid's channel. But then they saw us doing this, you know, right for the whole family kind of channel. No sex violence in my language said, Hey, wait a second. We got movies. We can do that too. So they put movies on at night and suddenly they got a channel for the whole family and it knocked, you know,
0: that, yeah, was the that was the end of the festival. That right. was it.
1: You know, they just, they just were bigger and more powerful.
0: And I love that you brought up again, and I'm going to keep going back into this for the listeners, and I really want to put on this, this, this angle. Because you don't realize the experiences that you have in life and the things that you're naturally good at, you're drawn to at a younger age, can shape and form you for later on in life. And you can take that information and experience to overcome and prevail you wrote, I wrote down, you actually took a quote from Casey Sting, oh, was it Stingle? Uh, never make predictions, especially about the future. And you take that on your desk. I thought that was powerful because I was like, this is, you know, just one, just by you using things like that. I know that we're like, somehow, I don't know what it is, but I was like, we probably have met before, like maybe just in a different life. I was like, man, that you're pretty much just putting down information because you're just using your comedy and it's kind of like a, kind of like a being a sarcastic type of way of looking at life. i look at life that way. I'm very sarcastic. It's like, that's like my second language. I think there's sarcasm. So when you wrote that down, why did you write down that quote?
1: Well, I was hired by HBO to do forecasting. Mm-hmm. Um, and forecasting is an interesting business. As I said, I was an economist for three years. Mm-hmm. You can, you know, most forecasts end up being mostly wrong, you know, And sometimes they're wrong for all kinds of crazy reasons. It's very hard to understand all the forces that are affecting something. Like Mm -hmm. all the forces that were making people either take HBO or not take HBO. Um, We couldn't forecast, for example, what the programming was. If you get a big hit, you're going to have more people taking HBO. If you don't, you don't. Pricing is a big big factor. I mean, there were just a million factors, right? So what HBO had done initially was they said, okay, this is how – HBO has been growing. So by the end of the decade, it'll be here and just do a straight line. You know, that Mm -hmm. didn't work so well. You know, immediately they started falling off of their of that kind of forecast and they they couldn't figure out why. It was really my job, not so much to forecast, which is what they hired me to do, but to and this is this is true of all forecasters, really, is to understand the information understand yes. what's going on in the system and to explain it as best you can and to use that as best you can to try and come up with some kind of reasonable understanding of the system and what's going to happen next and that's right. what i did
0: i like that a lot because i picked up on this i think it was um in what is it the movie anchorman with will ferry it was the whole stigmatism behind it It was like i'm you know i'm a Weatherman or news broadcaster in San Diego, where it's always eighty degrees and sunny. You know what I mean. So I thought that was kind of funny, and I'm not sure if people picked up on that because that's one thing that they, you know, news newscasters and weathermen or weather women, they end up lying every day because they don't. No one knows what the going to happen. <laughs> so I thought that was kind of funny. Um. So okay, let's go into a little bit more in depth on the idea to looking at after you lit your wounds a little bit after they told you a hard no and laughed at you and told you 35,000 30, different reasons why it's not going to work. When you started like restructuring a measure and measuring, reassessing potential objections and looking at it in the biggest future pacing, a little bit of what some things are going to throw at you. When they finally said yes, and they're open to the idea from that moment, like what was your, did you take it as a win or are you just motivated? They finally gave you an opportunity to say, you know what, this might work. This might be a good idea.
1: Well, it was it was one of the most emotionally complex moments of my career. Mm-hmm. Um I ended up pitching the channel to the chairman of HBO, his name again, Michael Fuchs, mm-hmm. with absolutely no notice. My boss's boss asked me what I was working on, and I was writing up this idea for a comedy channel because I thought maybe, you know, somebody else would be interested after Bridget wasn't. Um and he took a look at it and he said, let's go see Michael. So I said, right now? He said, yeah, right now. And we walked into his office, which was a crazy concept for me. This guy was the head of the organization. Yeah, it's I was really no powerful. Worried.
0: Like powerful, powerful, powerful guy. If you don't know who that is, Google him. He's just yeah. powerful. And, and let me just set that up a little bit.
1: Two weeks earlier, he was named the most powerful man in Hollywood by the don't New York Times you. Magazine. Uh, and he, it was a whole cover story on him. So this is a guy, if I got in the elevator with this guy, accidentally, I break into a sweat, you know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Because Mm -hmm. he was that powerful. So there I am. And I had to pitch it. I kept thinking about and pitching the future. You know, that's Mm -hmm. where I started. Like, if this thing works, we are going to be the biggest thing in comedy ever. That's, you know, that's kind of where I started because, that was how I viewed it, you know. I always talked about it as the center of the comedy universe, you know, one of the great comedy brands ever. You got to sell the future a little bit, you but I also knew that, you know, knew about the objections he was going to raise. He was certainly more measured and receptive than my than Bridget was. And he actually asked me, "What did Bridget think of it? Did you talk to her?" And I said, eh, "She was lukewarm," but <laughs>
0: <laughs> I didn't oh, want to say she trashed it, you know. Right? <laughs> That's a, That's actually a that's a law. The forty eight laws of power, Robert Greene. That's actually a law. Never step over. To you. That was beautiful. Go ahead, love it.
1: <laughs> um, but for example, one of the one of the objections he brought up was a fairly common objection, which mm-hmm. is it's expensive. Mm-hmm. It will be very expensive. And in those days, there was no digital. You know, nowadays a kid could put a, a, a television channel out of his garage with all the digital for mm-hmm. not very much money. In those days, you had to buy big satellite dishes. You had to have least time on satellites. You had to have a huge operations uh, facility. I mean, it was millions and millions of dollars before you even put any programming on. So I I talked to him also. I I expected that objection. And I said, I think I have a way to start out very inexpensively. And we talked about that. So, you know, it, it was really talking through objections. And it wasn't just the objections that Bridget raised. I had talked to people for the previous, I don't know, for years about since I got out of grad school, Hey, why is there no comedy network? And then people would say, well, you know, let me tell you why. And they tell, and they bring up objections. And and that's how I came to understand what I had to do
0: to sell the thing. Awesome. That's, I'm, thank you for sharing that. A lot of people, they, they try to really lay in on that vision in the future, but if they can't, they, they don't have the capacity to be able to understand and see what you see it could be sometimes. That's why I love comedy, and that's where I learned how to do a lot of like my future pacing and anchoring and framing into the questions and getting them to feel what I felt, and then kind of using analogies for them to see it in a different way when taking the emotions out of it. And now you're not caught into the point of view conversation or ego, egotistical conversation or the emotional part. They're taking it all out, so now they're they are see what you're seeing, and you're doing it in a third party. And I always found that when I'm having a lot of pushback or resistance from someone, I'm going to use something from their experiences in life. If you're from New York, we're talking about Jersey shorts, I about some, some type of commonality for you to start and loosen up a little bit. Then I can actually frame it for bigger picture and then future pace and then go, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I see that. Okay. That makes a lot more sense now. And then I move on. So, and I, I feel that that's something that it just comes naturally for someone like you, or did that something you just learn through experience? I guess.
1: Well, I think it was a little of both. I mean, both? as I, you know, I remember when I first got into business, I had to learn pretty much everything. I mean, you know, your first job, you don't even know how to sit at your desk literally, mm-hmm. you know, I, you don't know what to do with yourself. You don't know what you're supposed to do first, second or third. You don't know how to treat your boss, all those things you have to learn. And the mm-hmm. the best way to learn is uh, by watching. It's like, you know, going to a fancy dinner for the first time. You you see all that silverware and all those glasses, you know, you
0: don't know where to start. I've actually had that, I've had that happen. I was like, where do you start?
1: (laughs) So you you watch that older guy across Mm -hmm. the table, because he seems to know what he's doing, and you just do everything he does. So it was a little bit of that. And yes, I had to learn uh, learn a lot of stuff about how to be, uh, and how to sell, and how to Mm -hmm. talk to people, how to be in a meeting. When I was talking to Michael, one of the things that you mentioned came up, which is, I knew Michael loved comedy. Mm -hmm. We had that in common. As a matter of fact, Michael was the guy who put the HBO comedy specials that became, you know, famous. He was the Mm -hmm. guy who put those on the air. He was responsible for getting that done. Uh, He was a very funny guy himself. And I I just I I knew I had the right audience. And I played to that. I play and I also played to his ego. Mm-hmm. I said, you know, when you, when you say things like we are going to own comedy,
0: <laughs> yes, to a guy, to a who's powerful had, man, yes, to yeah. a powerful
1: man who, you know, I thought about that after the fact, he's a powerful man, but he also has bosses. He, you know, we were owned by time, time mm-hmm. Inc at that time, time, yep. but time Warner, and he was not only responsible for making HBO successful, but he was responsible for finding new products, you know, expanding the business in any way he could. And here's this kid who just walked into his office with what sounded like mm, that might work. And that's where it was. I mean, I, I, I want to make that clear. He didn't say, "Hey, great art, we start tomorrow?" He said, "It sounds interesting. Maybe it'll work. Why don't we do some research? Why don't we
0: mm-hmm.
1: do a demo tape? Why don't we, you know, he started slowly. He wasn't crazy. Uh, and that's that's what I walked out with, like, oh my gosh, we're gonna we're gonna explore to see if this actually could work. Um, and that's, that's what happened.
0: I like that. And it's like, you know, that's a huge accomplishment right there. I'm going okay, I'm going to play into his ego and I'm going to play into not like really trying to manipulate, but you knew that you had a common out and he loved comedy. So he would be a little bit more open to hearing you out. And then it goes, okay, let's put some in the course. I just like any other successful person I've ever met in my life. You need to, you need to market research. You have to go to market strategy and look at all the different areas of opportunities. And how do I look at all the moving parts? And sometimes moving all, looking at these moving parts, if you don't know what's available, that's why your experience comes in. And if you're able to think outside the box, okay, you're looking at, you look at licensing to be able to have clips from movies. Well, if you put their title of their name in the movie in there, it's free promotions, it's free productions. So if you're looking at union laws, you're looking at all these different things where there, you're putting yourself in a situation where someone's got to get paid in royalties. Well, let's do it this way. And I love that that was an, a huge idea for you of saying, okay, I need to, if we're going to use these clips and give it again, get, get all this content, a 24, 24, seven, I need to go this way of doing it. And that's obviously, I thought that was genius. I thought it was genius.
1: Yeah, it was a clever, it was a very clever insight on my part. And it was um, a great way to start. And as you probably remember, it ended up not working. Mm-hmm. Uh, just before we launched, and the story is, we had we had in order to do that, we had to um, get permission from the unions and the studios and everybody, right? Yep. And most of them said, oh, "That's great, you know, promotion, free promotion. That's what we need for our product." So yeah, you can take scenes out of our movies and our television, our stand-up acts, whatever you want to do. Put those on as clips, and boom. So we started clipping. You know, we had these guys called the Cliptomaniacs. It was women too. Where they, all they did was watch stuff, took clips out, took the funniest part out. And we had a huge pile of this stuff as we went towards the launch day, huge pile. And about six weeks before we launched, might've been eight weeks, we get a call from the Directors Guild of America who had said yes. And they said, "Um, listen, somebody on the board changed their mind and uh, we're not going to give you permission to do that anymore. Boom. We're out of business or as somebody said, as somebody said to me, as we were sitting there hearing this news, now, what do we do? I Mm. said, we go to plan B. And he said, what's plan B? And I said, I don't know, but we better figure (laughs) it out. We got a launch in eight weeks. And that's, that's really what Mm. happened. That's Mm. really what happened. And, and, you know, again, I, I look back, at my younger self and marvel a little bit that I didn't just, you know, start crying and run out of the room.
0: Right. Well, saying, <laughs> your inner self does like I've, there's, there's been times when I was brokering a deal and you're talking about, you know, 20 million type of deal that I was brokering and it was just a flat. No, I was like, well, shit. Okay. You no, I took a step back. I was like, well, I'm not gonna I'm just kind of like this. Like once you've been kicked in the teeth that hard, then you're able you have to go back and go, that's never happening again. That is never, so I became the most prepared for the meeting, the most prepared. I might've been the, the smartest person in the room. I might didn't, maybe didn't have all the credibility, didn't have all the liquid, but I, when they asked the question, I knew how to overcome that. And I knew how to pull data from 10 years prior and being able to present it in a certain way. I'm going this, and I touched on the pain points. I hit pain points a lot with people like This is what you don't want to happen. Well, I'm trying to prevent this from happening. More information you're able to provide me, then I'm able to make the right suggestions and recommendations for you. But if I don't know this information, I can't help you. (laughs) Right? So, and once that happened to me, it's kind of like, okay, well, six weeks or eight weeks before the official launch. And okay, what's plan B? Well, plan B is simple. How do I get over plan that this issue? Like I got, we have to launch. So there's whatever needs to be done. This is what we have to do. Like, what was the, like, how massive was the team to kind of like execute some of the things that you would kind of roll out? Or I mean, were they, is it, was a smaller type of team of. No, we had, like, at, at that point we had hundreds of people working on the channel. Right. I mean, okay. there, were, there
1: were different parts of it. I mean, some of the, some of the people working on it were embedded in HBO. Meaning we, we got relied, on, we relied on their legal department, but some of them were full-time employees. And all in, you know, it was a lot of people and it was a lot of, you know, we had comedians, we had talent, we had contracts, we had, you know, we were pretty much screwed into the, into the idea here that we were going to launch this thing. And I felt personally responsible because mm-hmm. I, I started the whole thing. So whenever these problems came up, it was like, okay, what am I going to do? Uh, and how am I going to do this? And how am I going to keep my cool? as I try and solve these problems. And I'll tell you something, it's one thing to keep your cool in the office, but (laughs) there were were lots of times I went home and said to my wife, what the heck are we doing here? Right. You know, but, but you have to really, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a leadership uh, position, even though I wasn't, you know, literally the president of the company. because I didn't know anything about comedy at that point. And, and they made me, you know, they put me in programming, but I wasn't, I wasn't a top guy. Um, I I felt it was my responsibility to just make sure this channel got out there and succeeded. Uh, And that's how I approached it the whole time.
0: So when, when after the launch and you started moving on and it started taking off, like what was, how quickly did it, well, how was it perceived at the beginning for the, maybe first, let's go into first quarter of when comedy central launched. obviously it was the channel right first. And then obviously it moved on. What, how was it perceived by the, by the, you know, market at that time? Well,
1: when we first launched, we didn't launch in front of very many people. You know, Mm -hmm. in those days you had to go from cable system to cable system and say, please launch my channel. And some of these systems had 13 channel slots or 20 or 30. It's not like, not like now where they got 500 because it's digital. Um, So we were probably in front of, I don't know, a million and a half people. If that Uh, not very many people saw us. However, the press was all over this. They were mm-hmm. watching very closely. And I'll tell you why. Michael Fuchs, as I mentioned, had a, you know, he was a, a, a big guy in the business. He had an ego. And when he announced that we were going to do a comedy channel, he did it in a big press conference in LA. There were comedians there. It was, you know, lavishly produced. And he was up there. I was in the back of the room and he was up there saying, HBO knows everything about comedy. We are going to produce the funniest comedy channel you have ever seen. This thing is going to be so successful. And I'm in the back going, "Oh my gosh.
0: Oh god. What the hell?
1: You know, like <laughs> showing it down. <laughs> shouldn't we lower expectations just a tad?" But he didn't. And uh, you know, that was his style and good for him. But the flip side of that is kaboom. Day 1, the press says, "Hey, we just saw this comedy channel, this so-called comedy channel, and guess what? It wasn't that funny." As somebody pointed out to me, you know, if you launch a dramatic channel, people don't say, you know what? It should be more dramatic.
0: <laughs> That's a
1: good point. But, but if you point. launch a comedy channel, almost every everybody's going to say, it's got to be funnier. And that was... You know, very hard on all of us. Very hard on all of us working on the channel where they said wasn't funny. They called us the Gong Channel. They said HBO's mm-hmm. laid an egg. Michael Fuchs really screwed this one up. Yeah. There's a little bit of schadenfreude there because Michael was so powerful in the industry. I think they were having fun.
0: Yeah, digging him. Well, you got, you got people, especially you got to think about this also. I mean, you look at Tom Brady. People hate Tom Brady because he's won freaking so many Super Bowls. They don't like to see someone at the top. Same thing happened to Michael Jordan. When he was winning all these championships, people started hating on him. That's why he quit basketball in 92. He's like, the hell with you guys. I'm out. Peace. We'll go play baseball now. So it's when you're at the top and you're perceived as a threat and you're the ones leading the charge, people, pretty much anybody in the press is going to take a dig at some point. Like, you know, I can't stand this guy at the top, even if you're a good person. So if you have any kind of. If you're at the top or you're trying to get to the top of that one percent, you are gonna have haters, man. But I had to give them a front row seat and give them popcorn. You're gonna watch me, you're gonna watch me succeed today. <laughs> I'm gonna to make you eat it and feel it. So I well, think that's just with that persistence of me I'll, being I'll able to do the hell with it. Yeah, go ahead.
1: I love it. I, I, I was interviewed by the press at that point, mm-hmm. you know. Um, because I was put out there as, as the guy with the idea, you know, and, and the guy who sold it in and the guy who's working hard to make it work. Um, and I had to put on a good front for the press. I said, Hey, look, you know, watch this space, man. You know, you don't think it's funny now. Just keep watching because we got so much up our sleeves. I mean, I said everything I could now I wasn't the only guy on the record. Right. But I wasn't going to be defensive about it. I was going to, you know, I was going to say we are going to do great. And I, and the more you say it, the more you start believing it. Mm -hmm. And again, I went to work every day saying, okay, okay. What can we do more of that's working and what can we do less of that's not working? That was my whole mantra.
0: It's a simple approach. And just to kind of clarify for the listeners and me giving people front row seats and having that type of being very aggressive, that's a mentality. That's not what I say or what we do. It sounds like obviously with you need to put that mask on. How is it going to, how am I going to be able to communicate this message and let you know like, listen, Just give us time. Like building something great or anything worth of value is going to take time to be able to get it to the right people. And this is one of the questions that I wanted to ask you because in different parts of the world and taking this uh, taking it globally, so that's what HBO is about, right? Taking it globally, it's different in different parts of the world. You'll have just perfect example. Like I'm in England, and me being in London, I'm from America, but comedy here is a little drier, drier comedy. So if you, how, I mean, did you look into all those types of components and aspects of different parts and regions of the world?
1: Ultimately, but not initially. Okay. Got it. Uh, And the plan was, I mean, if we established ourselves domestically, we could start looking at selling some of our shows or maybe even doing, you know, doing comedy channels abroad, which is exactly what happened. Uh, Mm -hmm. and, um, before I left comedy, I was actually in charge of international and we had almost did a deal with Australia and we almost did a deal with Canada, you know, um, and we sold a lot of our programming, but you're right. Comedy is not comedy. It's a little more difficult to get comedy to travel than some of the other genres, but you know, to the extent that, uh, we could partner with people on the ground so that we could have a mix of not only our comedy, but. Say in in England we would have British comedy as well, or in Australia Australian comedy. Um, that's what we looked to do to make it work. Now I wasn't there forever. Comedy is now international. Comedy Central, and uh, I'm sure whatever they did, they right. did it right because they got out there. So
0: I and I don't know what their strategy was or how it changed. I mean, is like I'm gonna I going to? I don't want to keep going all the way into this startup. Obviously, Comedy Central, because you know it's obviously led to this memoir. as a lot of my questions. That I was kind of thinking outside the box on what the listeners really wanted to hear. But I guess I'll leave it with this before we go into the, your book, you go into the podcast of what you started with another business executive of Comedy Central. It came from Annie Vinnie Volley. I think that he's just a funny guy. And I love that your podcast as well because it goes, it gives the listeners or gives the audience something else to consume. I think you did it right when you started to become a writer and went to writing classes and having all this stuff. And he was like, I got, I got books in me. I need to get it out. And I thought that that was amazing. But how far down that process of when, when you started going and became a producer for all these other shows and cable networks and cable shows, I think it's what court TV and whatnot. Right. Right. Like when you, when right before you left, I mean, is it something you felt like you just had needed to leave and you just guided maybe some to something else. Like I've already done enough. I mean, what, like you mean what when, I left, you to, when I yeah. left the
1: cable business? Yeah. Um, I think that's a good way of putting it, actually. Uh, You know, if you look at my career, you can see that I like to change the channel. I see that.
0: Yeah, me too. You know, when
1: I when I left consulting, I was having a good time, doing pretty well. And they wanted me to stay. I mean, my boss was like, oh, you can't possibly leave now. But I said, look, I, you know, I'm young and I got to try something else and I'm not sure I can do this for the rest of my life or even go back to grad school for economics. So I'm going to go back to business school and see what else is out there. And that's how I ended up getting into television. Similarly, I I left HB, I'm sorry, Comedy Central because I was fired.
0: Yeah. Um, well, well, I meant that that's why I didn't want to touch on that. I was talking about like, when you left the industry, like, you know what, I'm going to be out. Like I'm Kind of be a dumb with this consulting side of it. but Go ahead. I love this. Um,
1: So, uh, you know, I left Comedy Central. I did some consulting. I worked mm-hmm. for a lot of different channels. And then I ended up at Court TV. I became president of Court TV, which was a terrific challenge. And we made that a great success. And I was very proud of that. And then that got bought. And I thought, okay, I made this first channel, Comedy Central, and that got kind of taken out from under me. And now I just spent eight years working on this other channel, which is very successful, making money. And that just got taken out mm-hmm. uh, from under me. And somebody, somebody obviously, not obviously, but, I, you know, I got some job offers to work at other channels. And I thought, I, I, I've done this twice already. Right. You know? right. I mean, I, I understand that some people enjoy, and there is absolutely nothing wrong with this, doing the same thing over and over in their career, going I with their I strengths. Couldn't do it. Yeah. But that wasn't me. I can't, I, I couldn't do the same thing over and over. As a matter of fact, I was offered a job at uh, Discovery Channel because they had a channel they were they had just started basically that was going to be like Court TV. Um it was called Discovery ID. And when I interviewed for the job, they said, you know what? We watched everything you did on Court TV and we did that. That's how we put this together. So mm-hmm. we want you to come in here. And I thought, I did this already. Yeah. It's I mean, like another, it's, like I, uh, deja they said, vu. they're telling me I did this already, you know? Mm-hmm. So I could have,
0: you know, it would have been a good job,
1: but I said, no. And I went on to something else.
0: I, I picked up on that in your story. And I was, that was something that I, like I said before, this, this memoir was the best book that I've read this year. Oh, thank best you book. so much. I'm, I'm serious. That's so
1: nice. That it is really I'm serious. Coming from I'm you, just, especially.
0: I appreciate that. It's it man, I just I have to say it because maybe it's just where I'm at in my like I resonate with your story so much because I feel like there's so many parts in those pivotal moments into your career and you've done so much and had so much success, but it feels like to me that intuitively you kind of like feel like you know you need you're done, like with this. I'm done with this, I'm gonna do this now. And it's like you being tapped into your source. It feels like you're always you're tapped in you're dialed into your source. Like I know what I want to do. Most people don't have the courage because they're controlled by outside sources. And I see this a lot in entrepreneurship. But I just kind of like just giving a little bit more context on why I picked up on this with you. So when I went to, left education and went international and it was brokering deals. And, you know, I've obviously made my bones in entrepreneurship and had an amazing amount of success. So I'm so blessed, so blessed. But then I never really lost myself other than, I was bought into the identity of being successful. I mean, when you're, and then I didn't build my own programs and sold them to the trade schools for around $13, $15 million. You can get a little egotistical, right? Well, I was like, well, I don't want to go into companies and do exactly what I just did for, it was the world's first only privately owned, independent, like uh, nationally accredited programs. So that was a huge accomplishment for me, granted, but I only felt that accomplishment just for a second. And then once I started looking at these, all these other programs and teaching people how I did it. And I was like, I don't want to do this, man. I just, it's like, I've already, it's kind of like you get on stage and you take the mic and you've already dropped the mic. So you can't walk up on the stage and pick up the mic again. I got nothing else to do here. I'm out. So then that's where kind of like, when I was left with a really kick-ass show, the win-win effect and got 2 million downloads on the show. It just, it took off, man. And I was just so blessed. It's like, well, damn, I thought my cat would listen. I didn't know these many people would listen. So when that happened, I was like, started looking at the industry a little differently when it comes to media. I've always been fascinated with media. Fascinated. I feel like I was being pulled to this. It's like, hey, podcasting took off and I'm going to apply the educational approach to media to where it's a all-in-one educational hub. So if you are a new podcaster or a person that has a story and you're passionate about something, we can... Pretty much get you microphones, get you anything you need, and get you a start. That way, you're going to one spot and one thing for it. Then, plus, I have WinJet Radio, WinJet Music, WinJet TV. There's a lot of different things that I'm working on. And I think the reason why I picked up on your book and I really resonated with me, because I feel like the people that I've communicated with are like, oh, this is a brilliant idea, but how the hell is this going to happen? Well, I don't really, you don't need to worry about how. I need to fly the plane. <laughs> I can't build it. <laughs> I can fly this damn thing, but I can't land a plane at the same time. So that's how I view you as a visionary. You fly planes very well, but going in and like building something, you know, you know your zone of genius. Is that something you picked up on early in your career that you knew exactly? It's like, I don't give a shit what these people say. I know what I'm doing and I have the vision in my mind. Is that something you picked up on like maybe later in your career or where does that, where did you come to that kind of thought process or have you ever thought of it that way?
1: I think the faith I had in myself and the faith I developed myself started pretty early um, because I was considered a smart kid. Okay. Not a genius, not a prodigy, but I was smart. I read a lot of books. Mm -hmm. You know, I go to the library and read science books when I was, you know, eight years old and people thought, wow, that's cool. Uh, And I think it's like anything else. You know, if you find things you're good at, then you keep doing them. Right. For example, athletes, you know, some kid walks out onto the soccer field the first time and, you know, kicks the ball and the coach says, or the, whoever it is, the guy next to him says, wow, man, you're good at that. Right. Cut to the person starts considering the fact that maybe they're, they're a pretty good soccer player. They're good mm-hmm. at this. Hey, wow. Suddenly they consider themselves a soccer player or an athlete or whatever it else, else it is. And so that was, that was my start. I wasn't an athlete, but I was smart. Mm-hmm. Now the other thing I had going for me was that I was funny, and it turned out to be a pretty good combination. Because if you're just smart, then people, you know, <laughs> like this you, you don't get invited to the party. <laughs> let me just say it that way. <laughs> so I found that you know being funny was also very helpful, and I did develop some faith in myself, some and faith in my abilities. I wasn't cocky or anything. I just thought, you know, I'm, I'll be, I'll be fine. I'll be doing okay. You know, I, I, I can solve problems. I can answer questions you know and then whatever I tried I didn't I didn't succeed at everything but I did try things for example when I got to college somebody asked me they said we're going to put on Fiddler on the Roof which was you know a great play musical musical and I said wow that's great And they said we want you to audition for it because we saw you do some comedy on stage you know I said oh my gosh I can't sing I can't dance what are you (laughs) talking about and they said it's okay just audition for it and I said all right Which you know, right there, it's like, was I crazy to say, All right, I'll audition for it? What was I thinking, right? So I auditioned for it, and they made me sing something, and I'm sure it didn't go so well. I mean, I'm musical, but I'm not much of a singer. So they said, Okay, we're going to give you the part, you're going to be, and you're going to have a solo, so we're going to have to teach you how to sing. And I thought, Okay,
0: (laughs) uh, you know,
1: somebody's going to teach me how to sing. I didn't even know you could learn how to sing, right? Mm And I got singing lessons and, and then I ended up singing on stage all by myself with this giant orchestra in front of a lot of people. Now, three months earlier, I, I, if somebody said that was going to happen to me, I'd say, what are you crazy? And Mm -hmm. I learned from that experience and others like that, that number one, yeah, I had some faith in my abilities, but number two, let yourself be taken to interesting places, right? Let yourself be dragged into experiences you otherwise wouldn't do. You know, I credit my wife with that a lot. You know, (laughs) I always say if it weren't for my wife, I'd be living in a one room, one bedroom apartment. You know, there'd be a bunch of boxes and a piano and a bed. That would be it. And drum set. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But my wife is adventurous and she, you know, Mm -hmm. she takes me around and drags me around. Has made my life fascinating. Um, So, yeah, I like I like the randomness of trying new things, even though it wouldn't occur to you otherwise to do that.
0: I love that. I love that. That's such good advice for anybody tuning in today. And I hope you guys are really picking up on this. I mean, just be open to just be open to change and open to anything like, okay, if it's something that brings you joy, I choose happiness over everything. All right. Like the the, every time that I leave with my and I'm listening to my gut and listening to my intuition, I feel like I'm being obviously drawn to something. I just I'm just free. I just let, let myself go. Because I don't want to, I don't ever want to be controlled by an outside source. Because whatever I own today, I can't take with me. So I want to live like a not to say a free spirit. Of course, I have rules and there's things there, but I just want to feel like I, I have have more to give, and I'm still going to be relevant in the marketplace and whatever I do. But I know one thing: if I'm actually following my heart and following my gut and following my intuition, I'm actually going gonna, gonna to make the right decisions. Because I've always I've, I've learned from past experiences and also other people. So when you, like, I guess when you started like you playing the piano, drum sets, and all these other things you're interested in, choosing happiness so pretty much over everything, and you just being happy, what actually gave you your calling to write this book? Like, what what kind of sparked your interest? Like, you know, I got a story to tell. I'm gonna write it. Is it just because of the 30 years? 30 years were coming up, or where did you kind of get no, that idea?
1: No, uh, I, I I didn't actually set out to write a book. Okay, I set out to write. I wanted mm-hmm. to learn how to write. Now, when I say learn how to write, it's not like I never wrote anything in my life. Mm-hmm. You know, you're writing business. I was in television. I worked on some scripts and, you know, wrote some wrote a screenplay. And uh, when I was a kid, I loved to write. And uh, you mentioned that I had an underground newspaper. I loved mm-hmm. writing satire. So I said, okay, now it's a, now's the time in my life when I have a little time. I'm going to take a class in writing memoir. And I started with memoir because, like, Hey, I got a million stories to tell about myself, right? Who doesn't? And I thought that would be a good place to start. So I, I went to these classes, and sure enough, and I got to say this out loud to everybody else you can learn things from people. You, know? 100%. You, can, you can become a better writer by taking a writing class, even if you think you're a good writer. You know what I mean? Because people love to teach, or the people who teach love to teach. And I am just so grateful to the people who taught me how to write. So anyway, I take these writing classes. And I'm in I'm in a memoir class with a lot of people. And one of the things you have to do when you're writing memoir is turn yourself inside out. Mm. Meaning you have to expose yourself in a way, in your writing, in a way that you never have before. To anybody, maybe. And as I sat around that writing class, I heard people tell stories, very intimate stories about themselves. And so it, writing became kind of like, wow, this is like a whole... Almost a lifestyle, you know, these people are dedicated to the writing, to being writers, to reading, to getting better at it. Anyway, that's a long way around to saying. So I wrote a lot about my childhood and I, I got better at it. And then one day I came into a writing group or a class, I don't remember, and I had written something about something that happened at Comedy Channel. And mm-hmm. everybody said, wow, we didn't know you did that. You did that at Comedy Channel. That's cool. That was, And that's a funny story. Why don't you write something else? So I wrote something else about comedy. And then after a while, I realized, wow, I got a lot of these stories. And then I realized, well, listen, Comedy Central was the greatest, arguably the greatest adventure of my career. I mean, it Mm -hmm. was just such a great, creative, crazy time. And I realized I had the makings of a book. And that's how I ended up doing a book. I just, you know, I just kind of pieced it together. But it's a memoir. I will say that. It's Mm -hmm. written as a memoir, meaning you hear not only about what I was doing, but how I felt about it.
0: Yes. That's what what I I was thinking. Yeah.
1: It's not a history. It's not, you know, it's not a biography. It's me. You're with me understanding how I feel. And I remember my wife reading one of the early drafts and she said, should you really say that? I mean, some of this (laughs) makes you sound like you weren't very confident. And I said, well, it was true at that moment that I'm describing. I was not very confident. I was probably having doubts, but I thought that would
0: be a better way to convey the whole thing than to lie and say, "Oh man, I had this right. sus right. from the beginning." Well, I, I quickly picked up on. I actually, well, I was reading on not, uh, iPad or whatnot, I Apple Books, and I was reading it, and I was like, you know, I was like, this is to me. I hear like everyone's a best-selling damn author. It drives me crazy, right? So everyone is, I mean, they'll, they'll come out with a book on Amazon and put it in a category and then become bestseller. And then it's the dumbest damn book i ever read. So, but i really liked this book because I guess you can feel your emotions when you're, when I was reading it. And I was like, wow, I've had similar feelings like this. And I wasn't, I wasn't, I didn't really, you look at me today. I'm like, damn, this guy's really confident. That comes through experience. I wasn't confident when I was doing all like starting my career and like really building it. But then confidence came the more I was doing things. because I knew what to be true. I had a strong conviction. Like I need to get this message out and deliver this message. And so when I stopped really caring about what other people thought and sort of polarizing through them to everybody they knew, then it obviously did help in the podcasting. So I picked up on that and I really, I thoroughly enjoyed the book. And I don't throw around like compliments like that just loosely I like guess the best book I've read this year because I I don't, maybe just something I needed to read at that time because I felt like what you were going through and you obviously can tell towards the end, you had a lot more confidence. You can see yourself evolving and changing throughout your book. And that's what I really loved about your memoir. Thank you. You're yeah.
1: welcome. I did, I did evolve and change and I did end up having more confidence. As a matter of fact, after I left comedy and went into court, TV. it was a whole different experience Yes, because I felt like I was walking in as a senior programming executive. Mm-hmm. Whereas at comedy, I had walked in with no programming experience, no experience in the comedy business. And as a matter of fact, the guy I was partnered with on day one, first thing he said to me is, what do you know about comedy? Because he was a comedy professional. He'd been in the business for 10 years. He knew all the comedians. I said, nothing really. I'm just kind of a fan. And that was true. And I had to I had to learn how to be in the comedy business by myself,
0: I like that a lot. so court it's court TV, and forgive my ignorance on this. was that the one that I guess it was the one that launched and it actually um, broadcasted the o j trial?
1: Yeah, the, yes, Court TV was launched by a journalist mm-hmm. who was uh, also a lawyer. His name was Steve Brill. and his his vision was he wanted to put a camera in courtroom so people could see how the judicial process works, how courtroom works. So we put this together and it worked great in that sometimes there were interesting trials during the day. The problem was at night he would rerun the trials mostly. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't a big money-making concept because you're up against, you know, some of the great dramas and comedies on the networks and everything else. So despite the fact that they had O.J. and they got a lot of attention, at that time, they were only in front of like 25 million homes out of 85 million. Mm -hmm. Everybody talked about it, but not a lot of people saw the O.J. trial on Court TV. After that, they realized it wasn't a moneymaker and they were going to shut it down. But they said, all right, we're going to take one more shot at it. They hired me and some other people and said, you guys, see if you can figure out what to do with this thing. So when I got there, <laughs> I was working for a guy who was chairman, um, a chairman, a guy named Henry Schleif. And Henry said to me, you're going to make this, you're going to figure out what to do with Court TV in order to make it successful. And I'm going to do everything else. <laughs> so
0: <laughs> that was pretty like much that. the
1: game. I mean, he was a very much an outside guy, loved going to parties, loved, you know, talking to the town and everything else. I came up with a schedule and 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 what the channel was going to be. And I said, you know, this isn't a channel about courtroom. This is a channel about the criminal justice system. Yes. Including crimes, forensic investigations, detectives, cops, the whole thing. And that's what we did. And it became remarkably successful. And by the time I left eight years later, it was in front of 85 million homes. We were a top 10 rated network. And we got bought by Turner Networks for a lot of money. And I was not an owner, by the way, but we got bought for a lot of money.
0: Right. Well, I, I picked up on that because I was just curious because I think that just by me reading your memoir and obviously learning more, I would like really take a lot of time to people that I am going to interview. It does not I don't care if they have one business, one book, or I take a lot of time to put immerse myself in their story because I really want to feel because my responsibility is to extract information from you to get to the listeners because I do have a lot of people that tune in. And it's my moral obligation because that's why they, they might have shown up for me, but they stay because of you guys. You know, and I, and I put a lot of effort into that. And it might not be obviously the best frame of questions, but I'm going to get to the story because I you p- I picked up on that with, you know, of course, comedy has changed the way that people consume comedy on a 24-7 channel. Then also you change kind of the game a little bit more and in, involved with the court stuff. And I really thought that it sparked the, the docu-series, like the crime series stuff. That's massive. I mean, you've got people right now on Netflix that just cannot wait for a new crime doc doc, um, doc series to come out and they consumed a the whole damn thing the one weekend and concluded my damn self. I did that when making of a murder. I was like, it went nuts. I was like this, I couldn't turn it off. Like, I don't know. Maybe I have one of those addictive personalities, but I was like, this is great because it kind of gives a little bit what you kind of pick up on. And I think this is beautiful that you give viewers and Fans a different way of looking at it that most people do not see. And I think that's why your podcast is going to blow up because you're talking about things that most people don't have access to and maybe just from your way of thinking. And I mean, have you, have you picked up on that? Is that one of this? Usually it sounds like to me that's your go-to. Is you pick up on things, you kind of like, okay, let's, well, I'm thinking outside the box here. I'm gonna solve this problem that I see and I feel. And you're going to make a decision on the fly and go, I'm going to give a little bit, this is an angle that you need to look at. I'm going to give them a little bit more direct access and something they've never seen before. And I think that's takes a lot of confidence. It, it takes a lot of confidence within yourself and going, you know, this is a great idea. Like a, in order for you to have a great idea, you need to go through like 30 bad ones. <laughs> right? I, from the way I look at it.
1: Yeah, it, it, it's it's interesting you talk about um, the great idea and going through bad ones. Um, and it's also about modifying your idea. I mean, one of the okay. things I tell people is, you know, yes, you got a great idea, stick to your idea, but be ready to, you know, be ready to compromise, be ready to change. And, you know, people use the word pivot. I don't particularly love that term myself, pivot, like, because, okay, we're going to do something completely different. Um, it's more about adjusting or mm-hmm. reacting. And keeping your eyes peeled for what's working and what's not. I, I mentioned that before. Um, certainly with Court TV, even, we started out. And again, that was my vision for it, just the way I explained it. And by the way, talk about an, an, an idea that was not well received. The advertising sales guys and your sales mm. guy. First thing they said is, I can't sell anything that says crime. Why not? No advertiser is going to say, I'm going to put this on crime. Mm. I said, well, you know what? We're going to figure out how to make that work. And we did. But, but th- there was such resistance from that corner to, to, to the whole concept. But I, I pushed it through. Um, but th- but the,
0: th-
1: the thing is, we started out doing crime documentaries, and then we saw it was working, and then we tried different things. We came up with this idea of psychic detectives. Because, you know, what we did, we looked very carefully. The same way we did in comedy. We explored all the corners of comedy and found out, found new ones or innovative ones or things that wouldn't have otherwise been on television. For Mm. example, Mystery Science Theater 3000, which was a big hit for us on comedy, and is still around today. I mean, that's 30 years that that show has survived. When we found that, we said, oh my gosh, this is such great comedy. That's a show where you have three people sitting in front Mm. of a movie screen making jokes. We'd never seen anything like it. And we said we got to put this on the air, but you know what? HBO would not have put that on, nor would CBS, NBC, or ABC. If it weren't for Comedy Central, Comedy Channel at that time, nobody would have seen it. It would have just disappeared. And it's the same thing with Court TV. I found it was an opportunity to do things that otherwise wouldn't have been done anywhere ever.
0: They have you know? a show of the, like that in here in England. They pick out families watching, to call it the telly, you know, right? Just watching the tube, <laughs> right? They sit there and they, this is funny because they're talking about what's relevant and what there's, what's actually on TV right now. And all they're doing is just making fun of whatever that is. And it's actually really comical. I think that's probably where they got the idea from.
1: Uh, who knows? I, I mean, who listen, knows? you know what? the way we got the idea is because our head writer, Eddie Gordetsky came in one day and says, we need, we need a show where people talk back to the screen. Cause that's what funny people like to do. And he talked like that. And, and we <laughs> said, yeah, great. And then that, then we found mystery science here 3000. It's a great concept.
0: I enjoy it. I mean, cause I do the same thing. If you can, I mean, people can actually hear some of the comments that I make when I'm watching something on TV, they'll be like, Whoa, this is Chris is a little sadistic. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know what's wrong with my mind, but anyways, it's so funny, man. But let's talk a little bit more. Let's kind of like wrap this up with a podcast and let's talk okay. about this a little bit. We can, and I really want to shine a light on this because I really, this is obviously my game, right? It's a podcasting game and looking at it in more of a, in a bird's eye view. Like, so the course, the first, I think you've done like what, 10 episodes I've think I've seen 10 episodes has launched so far. You probably have yeah, yeah. a lot more.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We've, we've done more than that, but we originally went into this saying we're going to do 12 episodes um and the reason we wanted to do it is because it's the 30th anniversary of comedy mm-hmm. central's launch comedy central was launched 30 years ago in april and my friend Vinny, who was one of the first employees we hired at comedy channel uh, called me up and said you know what comedy central what are they doing for their 30th birthday i didn't see Nothing. anything
0: i didn't see Nothing. anything
1: right you know what channels love their birthdays you know why because they can sell the advertisers and they can sell them, you know, going to say, Hey, we've been around for 30 years. They did nothing. And it was like, it, it broke my heart a little bit, you know? So Vinny says, yeah, let's, so let's do, let's do this podcast. And I said, great. So we, the idea was to talk to people who had started with the channel in the early, early days, you know, either on comedy channel or comedy central and not only talk to them about how they got there, why they got there, what they were doing. And, you know, for many of these, people was their first job in television um but mm. also talking about what happened to them for the last 30 years because now these some of these people are gigantic in the business right it took off i mean when one one woman who started her first job in television her name's gail gail berman she started at comedy channel she said i walked in i didn't know the first thing about television i didn't know where to put the cat i didn't know anything and she she ended up being the head of Fox Broadcasting and the head of Paramount Pictures. This woman is one of the, you know, one of the bigs in the business. And it was, you know, it was so gratifying to Vinny and me to talk to this person and have her say, oh man, we had so much fun. And I remember you guys and, you know, a little bit of reminiscence, but also we found that the the podcast really was informative to people who wanted to, understand how to get into the business, you know, Mm -hmm. how do you get into the TV business or the film business or the radio business or the podcasting business? Well, you listen to other people's stories. That's one thing you can do. Yes. Um, and the other thing is they're funny because all the the people (laughs) we're talking to are funny people. And my partner, Vinny is uh, just, he's one of the funniest guys in the world. He worked on the letterman show for 15 years. Um, so we just have, yeah, he was he was the executive in charge of production at CBS for years. Uh, working on Letterman, also worked with Howard Stern, so he's a you know genuinely funny guy. So the two of us, whoever we're talking to, especially if it's somebody who's really funny, we're just laughing our heads off, you know, having having a good time. As a matter of fact, I got to tell you one story. This came up yesterday. My wife's cousin listened to one of our podcasts, and she said to my wife, "Hey, is that why you fell in love with Art and married him because he's funny? I didn't know he was that funny." <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> And my wife said he's not really that funny. No, she's just she said she just said, Yeah, well, it was one of the things, but but I things, just thought yeah. that was funny that she she had no idea. Anyway. Yeah.
0: I love I, comedy is a, is one way of being able to loosen people up and, and enjoy themselves. I, I just anything that I can never listen to is, is I'm gonna use comedy. And comedy is I use it and also in a way of being able to get through some traumatic experiences in life. You can always that's why when you go into one of the best things I ever did, are, and I'll leave with this is I went and I was studying regret. And I went to a retirement home and I um, interviewed a bunch of this is obviously way before COVID, it's like 2011, 2012, 13 ish. And I was studying regret and I was asking people that are in a retirement home, like, what are some things that you look back at your life and you wish you'd have done differently? And they would just expose, so you could see the pain behind their eyes. And I made a conscious decision at that time. I was like, I, I'm going to leave it all on the floor. I'm going to die on E. I'm, I'm going to die on E. So, and that, that was a huge moment in my life. And that's when I stopped doing what I was doing for, you know, trade schools. I was making really good money. I was like, I'm jumping. I, I, I don't highly. I don't suggest this for anybody. Okay, but I let I liquidated all my funds. I did my 401k, dropped all that out, and I was like, I need capital, and I just went into the entrepreneurship. <laughs> but. I'm just happy that I was able to jump, because that's kind of like my personality anyway. If I'm an all-in cat, all-in dude. So and I think that where where your show, you're giving them a little something else to look at and hear, and using comedy as a way of just having natural conversations. I mean, you, people can listen to your show, and I use, and I say this a lot to my podcasters that are within the community, you need a show. Um, I have um, Jess Lee. She's a country artist. For She was on the... With Blake Shelton. What's that called? The Voice. I yeah. interviewed her, I don't know, a year and a half ago. I've known her for a while. And I came to her with an idea. I was like, listen, what if we had an idea come up? I, said, I have an idea. What if you did a podcast show that kind of leads up to, it's called the Jess Lee Road Roadshow on Behind Backstage Pass, talking about what's going to happen on a tour. Then we could put a film crew there to shoot you doing a documentary type of style or a reality show, and we'll pitch it to one of the networks. Well, wouldn't you know it, Art? Working right, <laughs> so that's and, and it's working, so that's, that's kind of cool. like, yeah, thank you. And, and it's kind of like that's how I think that really the book really I was like drawn to it and I was really interested because I was picking up certain things that you were doing in the book. I was like, damn, I'm not crazy, <laughs> maybe I'm not nuts. I was like, everyone else is freaking nuts, okay? Well, I'm not crazy, and that's why I, I just want to say again, like in a formal way, like I really appreciate that book. It really been a lot. Um, thank you, Chris. You're welcome. And so with the podcast, so you did the first 12 or what is the, what's the plans coming up for season two, three? I mean, or how long are you going to be doing this?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, we're going to keep doing it because we, first of all, we enjoy doing it. We enjoy working together, Vinny and I. Um, And also we love comedy. So Mm -hmm. we're going to expand, you know, we've had, we've had um, a couple of other people who were sort of outside the original comedy central comedy channel family on and it went better than we expected. You know, we talked to them about like current comedy or the work on yeah. sitcoms or whatever they've, they've been doing. And, you know, again, it's fascinating to hear how people got into the business, what they enjoy about it uh, and, and about their success. It's, it, it is inspirational. And again, you, you can't have more fun talking to people who are funny for a li- than yeah, talking right? to people who are funny for a living, man. That is just great.
0: I just all I ever I do. Like so, I was telling you that I was, I made a decision. I was like, I don't really want to go back on a stage. And Mike, I just dropped and pick it up. So, I just figured that me being able to interview people, I just have a blast. This is what I love to do. I it love interviewing fun. people, and I, it's just fun. And especially if you can have a little good time. And if someone picks up on this, is listening to it, and it changes their life or plant a seed for them to grow into whatever they do, like. I mean, even last night, I was interviewing Marty Ray Project. He was, I mean, he's just amazing show. He's got like, he had Brett Kreischer and all of these guys. He's interviewed on his show. Just wasn't getting a lot of traction. But I had him on the show and I got messages and emails. amount of feedback. People sent in, Chris, you're changing my life. Like your show is my highlight of my week. And it blows me away, Art. Well, blows that's, that's, me away. That's
1: the best part. You know, I wrote the it book. Is. The best part for me is hearing from people who said, I read your book. And I loved it and I got a lot out of it. Here's why I liked it and thank you and all that stuff. I mean, you know, it doesn't happen 20 times a day, but whenever it happens, man, it gives me such, such a good feeling, such a good feeling that I, that I made a difference.
0: Mm. And you definitely made a difference in mine. So and I know that we'll have future conversations and I would love to pick your brain on a couple of different ideas that I had and seeing how I can best support you, you know, just short term, but then also long term. Cause every person I have will come onto my show I don't just have people come onto to the show. It's always done by referrals. I don't do a bunch of outreach and get people. Hey, would you come on my show? Like, I don't got time for that. I got. I want to be able to interview the right ones that's going to fit for the audience, right? So, and I think that's probably why it's the amount, amount of impact that I'm able to make through a microphone with people. Because, you know, once you kind of change the show format and changing what people really love, then they're going to tune into something else. Right. So, But I, I can't wait, man. So anything that I can do for you, just let me know and, and good luck on a move and I appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much.
1: My pleasure, Chris. Thank you for having me.
0: You're welcome. Um, I guess we could put, obviously put show notes and whatnot, but I guess for for the most part, it's something that podcasters say towards the end of this. is the only question I hate asking because we can put this in show notes. But what's the best way of finding you and getting access to you other than the podcast and the book?
1: I have a website. It's called artbellwriter.com. It's got some other stuff I've written. It's got information about the book, how to buy it, of course, information about the podcast, where to find it. You can, you can link into the, to it from there. And you can also contact me through the website. So that's, that's really
0: a good first place to stop. Okay. Perfect. Perfect. Well, Art again, I appreciate you. Thank you again, guys. Y'all be well, be, you be great. (laughs) If you need to go back and if you're looking to do anything in life and you have a vision and no one believes in you, I highly suggest you picking up this man's book. Thank you.